At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us, and if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. <laughs> and I'm Addison Peacock. <laughs> and we are coming right back at you with a brand new chapter of The Cryptid Keeper, which is almost kind of like a direct video <laughs> sequel of the last- Actually, no. This is more like- the threequel after the direct video sequel, where things basically would go back to the original formula. Wait. We're going weekly again. <laughs> oh my god, right, yes. This is the first episode of the uh, second weekly era of Cryptid Keeper, so if you joined us during our bi-weekly phase, welcome to back to some extremely chaotic energy. If you're an OG fan and you've been listening since the beginning, then um, thank you for sticking with us. We are so glad to be here, and we wouldn't be here at all if not for you and the generosity of our hashtag Year of the Moth Patreon donors. Yes, yes, yes. Like the time I used to wear very short plaid skirts over skinny jeans, it was just a phase. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Anyway, uh, not to brush us past the cold open or anything, but I think it's important that we dive right into this information. So since we are returning to a weekly basis with our episodes, I thought this might be a particularly prudent time to give our audience a bit of very important information, sort of a, a primer course, if you will. So today we are actually not talking about one cryptid at all. We are in fact talking about the taxonomy of cryptids. We are talking about the very science of cryptozoology itself. We are talking about cryptid classification. Whoa. Yeah, okay, yeah. Whether you are a new listener or old, you will be going into the next phase of the Cryptid Keeper Empire with all of the information you need to be a well-educated listener. Um, I play real fast and loose with the rules of cryptozoology, so I'm very excited about this. And you know what? In case you were curious, <laughs> I, st- I don't know anything about... We don't know anything about each other's topics most of the time going in, so... Cool. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I I think I was feeling kind of the same way. Like we've we've been pretty pretty loose with what we consider to be cryptozoology. We've been pretty loose with um probably even whether or not we consider ourselves cryptozoologists. But the people have expressed a certain level of faith and trust and monetary investment in us, and I think it's time that we returned on that investment by getting very serious about our craft. I can make no promises to you or anyone else. Well, Addison, why don't you tell me, first of all, what you know about cryptids? Um, I know that a cryptid is a an animal. Like, if we're going to the more more literal definition that I always learned when I used to watch Animal X, shout out to, I believe, Animal Planet? Yeah, Animal Planet. Uh, it's an animal that has not been explicitly confirmed by biologists or by, like, any kind of mainstream scientific research but that there is, like, colloquial evidence for or, like, reported accounts of, pictures of, etc., but that has not been officially classified, uh, given a a name, like, a Latin name. There's not an official, like, taxonomy or whatever for it. Right, exactly. 
as you have already alluded to, that's kind of a broad field of, lack of a better word, research, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. cryptid can mean any one of a whole number of things. The term cryptid can be used to talk about, like, creatures from mythology and legend and folklore. It can be supposedly supernatural or paranormal entities. It can be creatures that are uh, supposed to be extinct and yet persist. It can be creatures that we already know about that are found somewhere they're not supposed to be. Or it can be uh, an animal that we have identified before, but this one sort of surpasses the usual parameters of its species mm-hmm. as we know it. Right. And there have been animals that were previously classified as cryptids but are no longer because they have been officially confirmed. Right, exactly. My favorite example is the I.I. That is spelled A-Y-E hyphen A-Y-E if you want to Google it, and I highly <laughs> recommend that you do. I love these little creatures. They're so terrifying. They have like these spindly little fingers and these big, big bush baby eyes. They're really spooky. I love them. It's They're very, very good. And I can see why you would think if you saw one of those things, there's no way that thing's real. They look very much like a lemur as conceived by Tim Burton. <laughs> That's such a good explanation of the eye. Oh my gosh. I like them a lot. And they used to be thought of as fictional or mythological. They, they were classified as cryptids and uh, then were declassified as such because I they have been confirmed. Love that a lot, actually. That's very, very good. Yes. Gizmodo Australia classifies a cryptid just sort of generally by saying that, um, uh, in general, a creature is a cryptid when there is some evidence for its existence, but it is not irrefutable evidence. So yes. when you have, like, uh, an eyewitness account or a blurry photograph or, like, some video or journal entries from history or something, or, like, footprints... Um, but that evidence cannot necessarily be replicated or def- like determined to be definitively accurate. And, you know, especially as we get into the era of like more and more refined photo manipulation technology or like deep faking, um, you know, it's getting harder and harder to consider a photograph to be a reliable source of evidence. At one mm-hmm. point in time, you know, it was well thought like, well, shoot, if you can take a picture of it like that. That proves it. Although people have been faking photographs as long as photography has existed. I know. The fairies, so good. It's 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 incredible yeah. to think about. It. People will always find a way. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking back to like old school. Influencers? True influencers, Addison, always will always find a way. True influencers were the folks making old school spirit photography like way back in the days of like mm-hmm. Mary Todd Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> the girls who faked those fairy photographs, those... Those are true yeah, influencers. They're so good. They were influencers. Tell me they weren't influencers. They were. Do you think they wouldn't have a brand deal? Oh, they totally would. Do you would. think they wouldn't be getting a guest spot on an episode of My Little Pony Friendship is Magic? You're wrong. They would be selling me leggings with pockets in them, and I would buy them. <laughs> I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I never do that, ever on this show. Not once. New listeners, just take me at my word. I've never done it. Not even a single time ever. Don't worry about it. You don't need to go back and listen to the backlog. You're getting a new episode every week. Don't be greedy. (laughs) Don't be greedy. (laughs) Anyway, um, there are a number of different ways that cryptids could be classified if we were to treat this as a bit of a harder science than it actually is. Cryptozoology itself as a quote-unquote scientific field or field of study was strictly speaking, founded in the 1950s by zoologist Bernard Huvelmans and Ivan T. Sanderson. Now, you probably don't know either of those names I as not. mainstream, like, 
progenitors of great scientific thought because they were just the founders of cryptozoology. <laughs> just? <laughs> but very important to us and our interests and our beloved passions and the things that we do here as respectable cryptozoologists. So we are going to learn their names today and we are going to spend a lot of time thinking of them and thanking them fondly for their many contributions to our field and the existence of our current Patreon. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you, please. So cryptozoology does not follow the scientific method. We know this, right? Like scientific method is a manner of acquiring concrete and replicable proof of something, and since cryptozoology is defined by the exact lack of that, it does not follow the scientific method, and therefore you can't really call it a science. It is a pseudoscience, but that doesn't mean that we can't take it seriously. So if we're looking at the way that cryptids could be classified, we can get into a number of different methods of doing this. We can either try to classify cryptids according to the extant taxonomy that we have for animals. This might look something like sort of breaking them down by our best guesses at what species they would fall into, or inventing new families and genii for them, and then making scientific quote-unquote names for them that would then become picked up along the way. Now we do break them down, but it's only to build them back up. <laughs> As they have done for us so many times. I'm sorry, what were you saying? I was just going to say that uh, because we would not have specimens to then base that sort of approach on, that doesn't really work super duper well. Right. It would work arguably for things that are kind of universally... Uh, accepted in the cryptozoological world to have specific origins, like, for example, to classify Sasquatch as a certain type of primate or hominid might make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And you could probably convince enough people to go along with that, that that would be a universally recognized term. But you'd have a really hard time doing that for much of anything else, like jackalope? Maybe. Okay. Bigfoot? Yeah, sure. Uh, even things like sea monsters, you could probably devise a bit of a key or a system for that yourself and get into some level of specificity when it came to certain characteristics. But even with one creature in the same place, you and I know that there are a lot of differing accounts on what those characteristics end up looking like. So if you're trying to use something like a dichotomous key to sort of figure out what kind of specific cryptid something is, that breaks down really quickly. And the associations are more with like the place and the stories about them than they are sometimes with the actual physicality of the thing, right? Right. So we're kind of going to disregard that approach. Okay. That's not really how we're going to roll today. There is another one that is somewhat more universally appreciated, and that would be a sort of exploration of 10 different categories that are, I would say, more or less canonized. Uh, and those are from an individual named George Eberhardt. So George Eberhardt published a text in 2005. It was actually a two-volume text, sort of an encyclopedia of cryptozoology, if you will. It's called Mysterious Creatures, A Guide to Cryptozoology. You can find it on Amazon. Again, it comes in two volumes, so make sure you get them both. Mm -hmm. But it breaks things down into 10 different cryptid categories. They're not perfect, but they're a really good starting point. And so we're going to explore those a little bit today. Okay, yeah. Now, Eberhardt's categories have a lot more to do with, like, the origin of a creature. Or maybe the broad understanding of where that thing comes from and sort of how we would assume like the, the, the sort of core nature of what it is. Rather than trying to ascribe something to its physiology necessarily, mm -hmm. these 10 categories look at it much more from the approach of like, okay, why can't we prove this thing? What makes it weird? 
And I think that's a much more solid way of going about it because it incorporates a lot more about the kinds of things that make cryptids interesting, right? Right. So the first category, category one, cryptid, is distribution anomalies. These are known animals, animals that we do know for a fact exist, just found in places they shouldn't really be, like phantom kangaroos, for instance. I was just about to say those, or the uh, popping up of big cats in England. Yeah, exactly. Or like out of place alligators. So like the gator man, like things like that. Those are absolutely uh, category one cryptids under George Eberhardt's distribution system. They're distribution anomalies, things that we know in places they shouldn't be. Easy enough, right? Yeah. Category two would be undescribed, unusual, or outsized variations of known species. So again, animals that we know for a fact exist, but something about this particular version of animal is weird in a way that borders on inexplicable. So maybe yeah. we're talking about like the Jabafofi, which is a spider ostensibly, but it's a no. really big one and we can't really explain that. Or like there are reports of giant turtles or really big snakes in the Amazon. And the interesting thing about that is like, well, that might not necessarily be a cryptid, right? In some cases, it super is. Like if a snake is, for example, a hundred feet long, then we know, well, yes, certainly something, <laughs> oh, something is amiss. But if we scientifically know, like, this snake tends to range between six and eight feet long, and we find a nine and a half foot long snake, that doesn't necessarily mm. make it a cryptid. That just means it's a big boy. Like, more of an outlier. Right, Or exactly. a big boy, as the scientific term goes. But according to this categorization system, if you didn't necessarily have an explanation for why that thing got to be the way that it was, it could still be kind of a mystery and it could still kind of be a cryptid and it would in that case then be a category two cryptid, at least according to Mr. Eberhardt. What's three? Category three is survivals of recently extinct species. Oh my god! Sorry, I didn't know that was what was next and I got too hype. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. So category three, survivals of recently extinct species. And according to nationalcryptidsociety.org, that would include recent sightings of the Tasmanian tiger or sightings of animals that have been declared extinct in modern times, like in very recent recollection, yet we've seen them somewhere alive after the fact. So, like, the Mexican grizzly in North America, uh, the black wolf in Florida, or the great auk. All of those are examples of animals that have gone extinct fairly recently in terms of history. But there have been sightings of them in, you know, places that they maybe oughtn't to be. Which is so exciting. That's so thrilling. And and it's thrilling in a number of ways. One, because it's it's nice to think about, like, the possibility that if recently extinct animals are around, then, like, maybe maybe some pretty old school, like, variations of old school animals are still kicking. Well, then you're going to love Category 4. But also, it's <laughs> nice to know, because it, I remember as a child, I used to, like, cry when I learned an animal had gone extinct. Just, like, look at extinct species lists and cry. Yeah. It's really upsetting. Uh, and so the idea that perhaps... Perhaps we just missed some. It's very comforting. <laughs> there are a few out there somewhere. We just missed them. But uh, I'm assuming the next category then is dinosaurs. <laughs> I'm sorry, run that by me one more again. I'm being the DNA strand from Jurassic Park. I, I know exactly what you were being. I still loved it and would like to hear it again and possibly make it my ring. Dinosaurs. Ring. Val, can you extract that for me, please? Thank you so much. Dinosaurs. Category four. <laughs> Mingo on Jurassic Park. Uh, 
Anyway, survival I'm Mr. Of- DNA. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Category four is survivals of species known only from the fossil record into modern times. Yes, yes, yes. Which is, again, what you had guessed. There were several witness accounts over the years that allude to the survival of prehistoric species, although they have been determined by modern science to be extinct. Mm. This one comes up again and again and again and again and again on our podcast, at least so far. Who knows where we'll go from here, but... <laughs> it's a brave new this world. Is a f- it's a brave new world here in the weekly return of the Cryptid Keeper. Um, but anyway... It's a pretty commonplace explanation because sometimes it's the best one we've got. You know, we didn't see dinosaurs or uh, huge aquatic lizards in person, so we can assume any number of things about them. So it's pretty easy to imagine that some of the weird things people see today are just remnants of that much more bizarre and frightening time. Oh my god, absolutely. I, uh, I had a... Hey, everybody. I had a tweet go, like, weirdly, extremely viral a couple of weeks ago, and (laughs) it was not a very exciting tweet. It was just an experience. I work at a museum. I won't say which one. Uh, Oh, my God, yes. And I had a woman approach me regarding a show that we do at the museum that's, like, an educational show with a life-size saber-toothed cat puppet for the children to, like, enjoy and learn about the Mm saber-toothed cat. And she was very distressed and frustrated to discover that this was not an actual saber-toothed cat or saber-toothed tiger, as she called it. And as a lot of people call it, that's not actually the correct name for it, but I'm not, like, ever going to be rude and correct somebody. But saber-toothed cat, uh, a.k.a. Smilodon Fatalis. And now that I'm hearing about this, maybe she was onto something. <laughs> what <laughs> if she knows something I don't? I was going to say, what if that lady's situation was not that she was mistaken about whether or not the saber-toothed cat as a whole still existed, but maybe she was, like, either from some sort of Men in Black style entity, oh my god. Oh my or god. a time traveler from the future when they've returned to like popularity and like are, are fairly prevalent again. And maybe she was like, "I gotta go back in time. I gotta stamp out the one last saber toothed cat," and thought she had found it, only to discover <laughs> that what you had instead was a mere decoy. <laughs> A puppet designed by the Jim Henson Company. That is true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that her real rival had escaped her grasp yet again. I... A slippery kitty. (laughs) Ew. (laughs) Not literally. (laughs) You go to pet the saber-toothed cat and it's all like slick (laughs) and oily. (laughs) It's just like an oiled cat. (laughs) Um, My point is... My point is, as terrifying as a lot of those creatures are, it might be kind of nice to think about them being around. My favorite one, if it would still exist, would be the Harlan's Ground Sloth, which is just this massive sloth, like huge, like mm-hmm. eight feet tall sloth. I want that. I, want, I would like oh, that around so very good. much. Except the only problem is, you know how sloths have those claws? Mm-hmm. Think about how big those are on like an eight foot tall. Oh boy, so big. Not not a fun size for a claw to be. It, he moves very slowly, but one wrong move and you shall be cleft in twain. <laughs> Which is my one of my favorite phrases. Anyway, um, so that category, what category are we on now? Is that four or five? Oh, let's see. That was four. Yeah, that was four. And that's so like, long time ago extinct animals. That is survivals of species known only from the fossil record into modern times. Got it. Um, now, category five, you, know, you may notice all of these have somewhat unwieldy names in terms of categorization systems. They're not punchy. <laughs> Number five is survivals of species 
known from the fossil record much later into historical times than currently thought. So this is like an animal that was supposed to die out in one period and then finding fossils that suggested it was alive exactly. in a later one? Yeah. Okay. So not finding live specimens. Well, then what good is that? <laughs> I know, right? So this, um, for example, according to National Cryptid Society, would be an example... Uh, would be like a frozen or otherwise preserved woolly mammoth carcass being determined to be a few hundred years old rather than several thousand years deceased. Okay, that would be thrilling, though. It would be really fascinating, yeah. Because that would, what you were suggesting to me is the implication of like a woolly mammoth stomping around while Queen Victoria reigns. (laughs) For some reason, my immediate thought went to like the Oregon Trail, and I don't know why. You went to Queen Victoria, and like while I was reading this, my brain was like imagining like... (laughs) settlers on wagons and like a mammoth just sort of stomping along behind them. Alex, do you want to know why my brain went to Queen Victoria? It's not a good reason. Why did it go to Because Queen I Victoria? saw cats again on Saturday. Dear God. <laughs> and they reference Queen Victoria's reign like three different times in that they show. They do. It's really important to them, I guess. I don't know why the cats would care. Ian McKellen straight up is like, these kittens don't get acting training like I did back when Victoria was the queen. Anyway. Anyway. <clears throat> I didn't. We're not going to... This train is going to keep on chugga-chugga-chugging. We're not stopping there. Oh, is it? We're not going to do that. Homest would be the cat on that train, Addison. (laughs) (laughs) No. You invoked this energy. I went to a cat's rowdy screening on Saturday, which, if you're not familiar, is a screening where uh, all of the normal theater etiquette rules are suspended. You are allowed to stomp your feet and yell and sing along and, and scream. Which and... is fitting, because for a movie yes. like Cats, all of the rules of general human decency are suspended. Yes, correct. So they gave us all, like, a couple props. <laughs> like, if you go see Rocky Horror or similar mm, cult yeah. movies where they give you things, they gave us, like, these streamers on a stick that looked like a cat toy, and they gave us these bubbles to blow. And the bubbles were for you to blow whenever Mr. Mistopheles was on screen. But the streamers, which made this fun, like, kind of noise, we were supposed to shake whenever our favorite cat was on screen. And when Skimble Shanks, the railway cat, first appeared, the sound was deafening. I can only imagine. Deafening in the theater. That's truly wild. The weird thing about... Okay. I hate that we're doing this. The weird thing about Cats is, one, it is definitely the new Rocky Horror, like, of our time. Mm -hmm. But... Two, what's so frustrating about that is, like, I would actually be fine with it if it had just genuinely sort of organically become that, which it was on track to do, but, like, the brand of the Cats movie figured out that this is where it was going and then capitalized on it, like, in the same year the movie was made. Mm-hmm. And which yet... Is a huge bummer. They still haven't made back their budget. Yeah, well, that's fair. There's some small cold comforts in this world. Yeah, and I'm not going li- to lie to you, Alex, I do feel a little bit like part of the problem because I did see it four times. <laughs> Life is short and I would like to be whisked away into a fever dream. Into a little catnip-induced playtime. <laughs> <laughs> did I say already on the podcast that the catnip was pitched by Taylor Swift's dad? I think you did, and that's so wild to me. Okay, it's fine. I'm sorry. I'm going to stop talking about cats. Uh, I just wanted to make sure I gave my recognition to Skimbleshanks since you're the one who invoked him on this pod. I don't think it's fair to give all the credit to me for that. Or to ascribe all of the blame, rather. Category six. Yes. 
Category six is animals not known from the fossil record, but related to known species. Mm. So an example of this uh, coming straight to us from Mr. Eberhardt himself would be Bibi's white banded manta which is a manta that is similar to known manta rays in size and shape. However, uh, it has large white bands of coloration on the body oh, of the ray. Oh, that sounds nice. So that's not, that's not necessarily a creature that we like have an extant record of, but we can only assume that it would be related to a current It critter. sounds cute. Mm-hmm. Number seven is animals not known from the fossil record, nor related to any known species. Oh, now we're getting into it. Yeah, so according to Eberhardt, here's where it gets interesting. So, like, according to Eberhardt, Sasquatch belongs in this category. There are a lot who disagree with that assertion because, like, you know, there are people who would assume that it would, in fact, be related to known species in some way, whether that was being some uh, separate evolutionary chain of hominid or, like, a kind of giant ape or what have you. But Eberhard himself classifies Sasquatch as a category seven. Yeah, no, I'm down with this. I like this choice. And he states that despite the fact that some researchers think that Bigfoot is a surviving Gigantopithecus, we know this huge Pleistocene ape only from a few jaw fragments and isolated teeth and have no idea what it looked like, which is, I guess, fair. But also, George, that is the entire field you are defining. So good luck, buddy. I mean, fair, but I also am I'm very on board with and excited by the idea that this could be something completely new and completely different. Oh, truly. And I think the main argument for that comes specifically from the language that dictates it according to the fossil record, right? We don't have fossils that correspond specifically with Bigfoot. So I guess technically it does have to fall into the category of not known from the fossil record and not technically related to anything else because we don't have proof that it would be. Right. So Bigfoot slides into that category on a technicality. Yeah, I guess technically it does. Um, let's see. Category eight yes. is mythical animals with a zoological basis. Mm. So animals that through the story and myth of them, probably don't have a scientific explanation, but- Suchinoko. There is- <laughs> Suchinoko real. Suchinoko real. Suchinoko real. <laughs> um, anyway, but uh, no, an example here actually is mermaids. Oh. So mermaids, and again, this is from the National Cryptid Society org. Mermaids were described by lonely sailors as aquatic creatures with fish-like tails and human characteristics from the waist up. Christopher Columbus himself wrote about observing, quote-unquote, mermaids swimming about the province ship oh, yes, a reliable in 1493. Source. Yeah, right. Um, on the previous day, according to this source, when the Admiral went to the Rio del Oro, he said he quite distinctly saw three mermaids which rose well out of the sea, but they are not so beautiful as they are said to be, for their faces had some masculine traits. <laughs> Oh, rude. Like, gross. Anyway, many have attributed mermaid sightings to the existence of the now-endangered manatee, and that the sailor's descriptions of the lovely female top house of the creature may have been, diplomatically stated, due to other factors. <laughs> anyway, this category would also be appropriate for some other mythical creatures like unicorns and dragons. So, Okay, listen, that means that... We, when we've covered those in the past, we covered unicorns, we covered, uh, we covered mermaids, and we've always kind of couched it in this like, okay, listen, we know it's not technically, okay, so it is actually technically. Oh, it is technically. We did nothing at wrong. According, at least according to one Mr. George Eberhardt, we did nothing wrong and never have. You mean my new best friend, George? Your new best friend, George, George Eberhardt. Eberhardt. I did not know his last name. He's my best friend, though. That's okay. I mean, in the age of internet friendships, how often do you even know the first name of your best friend? <laughs> listen... 
I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that I've in fact never done anything wrong in my life. It's nice to know. It is always very encouraging, yes. Category nine is seemingly paranormal or supernatural entities with some animal-like characteristics. Oh. So that would be like uh, Duendes or Gnomes, the Black Shuck, Phantom Dogs, the Jersey Devil, or our one and only the Wath the Man. Oh. Oh, it's best buddy. <laughs> so creatures in this category have been described as resembling known or unknown animals, but also having some unnatural or paranormal characteristics. Category 10 is known hoaxes or probable misidentifications. Oh, like the Fiji mermaid. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And my sweet baby angel, the jackalope. I love the jackalope. My darling sweet baby. The baby. Okay, so anyway... Um, these are the 10 categories of George Eberhardt. Now, you may have noticed that this system has some flaws. It's not perfect. It has some shortcomings. How dare you? It has some shortcomings. No, listen, it has some shortcomings. And I think we need to acknowledge that. I think the only way we can hope to improve our field is by seeing where its limitations are and then taking pains to improve those limitations when we notice them. Okay, yes, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. So, for example, Eberhardt's system doesn't really allow for things like angels or demons or ghosts or aliens, which are all pretty big categories of cryptid, you know, and they don't really fall anywhere into this particular explanation. Oh, dang, true. Also, I think as we notice, the names are a bit unwieldy. And if we're being perfectly honest, I think that some of these categories don't even necessarily need to exist, or they could probably be condensed into something a little bit more approachable. For example, if you're looking at a system of classification for cryptids, then I don't think you need to include an entire category for hoaxes, because hoaxes have already been definitively disproven and therefore don't even really fit into our conversation to begin with. Right, okay. So, I think there's a better way to do this. Now... Actually, this conversation, or this topic rather, I was inspired to do partially because of a conversation on our Cryptid Keeper Patreon Discord a few weeks back. Somebody had mentioned in the Discord, and here's a shout out to you, Origami Snowball, that um, they were doing a presentation in a public speaking class on the topic of cryptozoology and wanted to know how best to approach it. So they brought up this categorization system for cryptids, and the version that they had found actually included seven categories. So those seven categories are a different system. They're not Eberhardt's, and Eberhardt's is generally accepted to be like the sort of codified system mm -hmm. that all cryptozoologists would know and expect and appreciate and understand for now. But there is a seven category system. Okay. So those seven categories are going to sound a little bit familiar, yes. but we're going to go through them really quick. Rapid fire. So category one in this system would be cryptids of unknown species or subspecies whose form, size, or color is unusual or unique. So things that we don't necessarily have a reference point for who are strikingly unusual and really don't bear comparison to extant specimens that we already have. Okay. Category two would be cryptids of known species inhabiting areas where they are not known to naturally exist. That's a good category. I think we should keep it from either system. It's yeah. a fairly approachable one. It makes a lot of sense and it's not really covered by any of the other sort of distinctions. Mm -hmm. So category three in the seven category system is living cryptids known only from incomplete specimens. Oh, so things we have like, like bone fragments for and stuff. 
Yeah, exactly. Or maybe like we have uh, fossilized footprints or something and we have sightings that correspond with that evidence, but we have yet to actually have a whole one that we can definitively point to and say, here are all the bits. <laughs> that would be Jeff the Mongoose. Yeah. We have, uh, we have some cast footprints and we have some hair. I love that. <laughs> I also just have to say that, like, the best part of any cryptid taxonomy system is being able to say, that's a category three cryptid right there. Oh, it feels, I cannot articulate if you've not had the chance, which I only have just now had in this podcast recording session. If you've not had the chance to say it, it feels incredible. It should. I think everybody should take a moment and do it right now. I think you should pause the episode. Yeah. Take a moment. Think of a cryptid and say, oh, well, that's a category. Insert number I'll here. Give you a second right You here. will feel right here. You'll feel so powerful. Let's, let's do a little thought exercise. Addison, you uh -huh. can stand in for our listeners, but listeners at home, you can take Addison's place okay. in this moment. Um, so no, we're, <laughs> well, you're not going to take her place. You're not going to like, you know, inhabit her <laughs> do skin. Do not give them that permission. You're not going to like Please. matrix jump and somehow inhabit the spot where she used to be and create an alternate reality where I have in fact been co-hosting this show with you the entire time, dear oh listener. My God. <laughs> I hope you like taking my midterms. Okay. <laughs> anyway. For the sake of a thought experiment, join me. Mm -hmm. You and I, known cryptozoologists that we are, are hanging out somewhere in the fields of Pennsylvania, and perhaps we're taking in the beautiful steel fields, and it's a glorious summer, the, the sun is beating down, and there is much to see and experience, but it's all fairly quiet, when suddenly we spot what appears to be a kangaroo. <gasps> Oh, now that is definitely a cryptid of known species inhabiting in an area where it is certainly not known to naturally exist. It sure is. And I can only imagine the electric thrill I would feel by by looking at that, rubbing my eyes in wonder and, and merriment, and then looking at you and saying, Addison, we have a category two cryptid on our hands. I uh I look at my I look at my watch, which in this situation is like a smartwatch. It's got like a big screen. I don't know. I don't have an Apple Watch. I don't have a smartwatch. And I like do some calculations. I like hit some things on the screen. I swipe through some images, and it's like a Pokedex. It's like a Pokedex, and it does oh, a little so beep good. beep beep. And I go, I think you're right, Alex. That's a category two. God, it feels so good. Oh my God! And then I turn my hat around. I'm wearing a baseball cap. <laughs> I'm turning my hat around so the the brim is backwards. <laughs> I see you just this into Pokemon. You just started writing Pokemon fanfiction. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen it. I've never heard of it. <laughs> oh my gosh. What is that you called it? Uh, uh, punk punk a man? <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. Oh goodness. So yes, category categories for cryptids is a good system inherently. I have I, I broke no quarrel with the idea of categorizing them. I just think it can be done more efficiently. So category three, living cryptids known only from incomplete specimens. You brought up Jeff the Mongoose as a wonderful example. And I mean, really, what is Jeff the Mongoose? Not a wonderful example of aside from basic household decorum, but I digress. Uh, a trustworthy friend. <laughs> category four in the seven category system would be cryptids that went extinct or into hiding, but have been rediscovered or are awaiting rediscovery. Oh, these are sort of the waiting for Godot cryptids, I guess. Oh, are they also a metaphor for <laughs> the absurdity of life? I mean, what isn't really? Do we need a metaphor at this point? I mean, no, we really don't. Anyway, this one sort of um, 
This one sort of creates a, a bit of a broader umbrella for that idea of cryptids that went extinct but may not quite be so encompassing either you know, uh, things that we know for a fact happened at one point, but there may have been sightings since then or at a later time, or we have reason to believe that they will reemerge, which I think is a very wonderful possibility to leave open for yourself. That they will reemerge. Mm -hmm. But this sort of <laughs> is that, only that a matter of time. <laughs> this is that modern extinction angle, you know, mm -hmm. things that we have seen exist in the recent historical record, um, but that may still persist. Mm -hmm. Whereas category five is cryptids known only from fossils, but may have survived into historical times or to today. So this one combines those two categories from earlier, where we had um, animals from the fossil record that survived much later than previously thought, or even all the way into the present day. Yes, yes, yes. I yes, think yes. it's totally fair to collapse those two categories in one. That seems like a nice streamlined move to me, and I respect and anticipate it. Yes. Category six would be cryptids of new species or subspecies of already known animal groups. So things that are, for the most part, related to animals that we already know of, but have a distinction in some way, shape, or form that marks them as decidedly unique, but still biologically plausible. Like if we determined that those pink dolphins, that pink dolphin variation was actually a separate species and not just a color, a pigment variant. Yeah, exactly. That's a great example. I just wanted a chance to mention the pink dolphins because I keep thinking about them. I love them. It's a category six pink dolphin. I love it. They are real. It's just that <laughs> we don't know if they're a, or, or supposedly they're just a pigment variation, but mm -hmm. I would like to think they're their own, their own dolphin. I want to believe. Category seven is probably the simplest. It's just completely new species or subspecies. Very good. So not one that's tied to things that we already know, but ones that you know, are just inherently and entirely original and unique, not trying to be an imitator. They're doing their own thing and we respect them for it. I do feel a little bit weird that they're, they've, we've eliminated having a category that references magic. I did like that presence before. I agree with you, Addison, which is why I think this system can be improved yet again. Oh my god, Alex. <laughs> so I'm sweating. Okay. We went from 10 categories to seven. And the seven are a little bit more elegant, a little bit more refined, a little bit easier to hold on to. And I'm going to run down those for you one more time. Category one. Cryptids of unknown species or subspecies whose form, size, or color is unusual or unique. Yes, yes, yes. Category two. Cryptids of known species inhabiting areas where they are not known to naturally exist. Boom. Category three. Living cryptids known only from incomplete specimens. You got it. Category four. Cryptids that went extinct or into hiding but have been rediscovered or are awaiting rediscovery. Shazam. Category five. Cryptids known only from fossils but that may have survived into historical times or to today. Absolutely. Category six. Cryptids of new species or subspecies of already known animal groups. Hooray. And category seven. Completely. This feels like a Schoolhouse Rock episode when you do that. I'm so sorry I didn't write a song for this. I'm just trying to be a hype man, but I don't know how. I really love it. You're really good at it. It's just it is making me feel guilty that I came to this with the incomplete product because now I'm realizing that the interjection song would have been a wonderful component. I love that song. Continue. I do too. Anyway, um, category seven is completely new species or subspecies. Gee whiz. <laughs> Wowzers. <laughs> anyway, a lot that's great, but you will notice that the names are kind of hard to hold on to, right? Like it's difficult for me to remember what they are. And I literally just told you. And if I'm going to have an extremely convenient seven category system for cryptozoologists, young and old, to really latch onto, to make this field their own, and to rejuvenate cryptozoology with the energy that it needs to persist in the face of an increasingly scientific world, 
I think we need a rebrand. Oh my God. You're just going to, are you about to single-handedly pitch me a rebrand? I am, Addison. Because okay. I would like to introduce you to the Flanagan system of cryptotaxonomy. Oh my God. Oh my God. Category one. Is this going to be your, okay. This is your legacy. Category one, magic or aliens. It's as simple as that. Oh my God. That gets an entire set of them out of the way. It covers this idea of unknown species or subspecies, unusual, unique. Forget about all of that. One, magic or aliens. Okay. Two, animals that God misplaced. We know what they are, but why are they there? I don't know, but that's a much easier way to say it. You don't need 20 words when like five will do, okay? Category three. It's only four actually. What? I know, right? I did better than I thought. Category three. Jigsaw critters. We got bits and pieces everywhere. We don't know. They probably go together in some way, but we haven't figured that part out yet. It's fine. It's like the bunyip. It's exactly like the bunyip. The bunyip's a jigsaw critter. Category three, baby. That's so much easier to remember, right? Uh Uh-huh. Category four, real boy redux. They exist. We know. They're going to come back. It might be in some new, slightly altered form, or it might be exactly the same, but we're going to get to revisit them, and it's going to be great. Category five, vintage weirdos. (laughs) They were here once. They're kind of strange. They're not necessarily anything that we have any reason to believe was particularly typical for the animals that we know and love today, but they were probably there and they stuck around maybe in something that was kind of an unusual fashion, whether that was later than they were supposed to, or I don't know, like, why are they here? Look at an alligator. Does that thing look normal to you? No, it's a vintage weirdo. It comes from something way older and way stranger than any of us are used to. Mm -hmm. Category six, super weird dogs. Oh my God. You know what a dog is, right? (laughs) Sure do. What if it was like super weird? Category six, (laughs) super weird dogs. And category seven, perhaps the most interesting category, is you get to name these if you find them. (laughs) Please tell me more about this one. (laughs) It's exactly what it sounds like on the tin. These uh, These aren't a revisitation of anything currently extant. They're totally new, brand new critters. So if you're the one who gets to definitively nail that down, then you get to put your name on it. Oh my god, incredible. And that covers, I think, literally anything else. Alex. Oh my god. I can tell from your um, effervescent laughter that you respect my vision <laughs> and and the scientific process that went into it. I do. It. I have nothing but admiration for your scientific process, for your academic rigor. <laughs> and I think that this is the, I think this is the episode, this is the pitch that finally earns us the respect in serious cryptozoology circles that we've been missing since our first bad iTunes review. <laughs> I'm going to put this on a whiteboard. I'm going to erect it in an IHOP. And finally, I will prove all of the haters. Did they say IHOP or Denny's? They did say Denny's, but I feel like IHOP is the more reputable scientific institution. Oh oh my God. Where does Waffle House fall on this? (laughs) Well, Waffle House is like a category two. (laughs) It doesn't belong here, but it's here anyway. (laughs) It doesn't go here, but here it is. (laughs) Oh no. Hmm. That's how I feel when I see a Cracker Barrel in Southern California, if I'm being honest. Do you have Cracker Barrels in Southern California? I think I've seen one. I might that have is, been dreaming. That is the phantom kangaroo of chain restaurants. I said that, but now I think I might have dreamed it. <laughs> no one correct me. I don't want to know. I want to live in this in-between space. I like the not knowing. No one can definitively prove you wrong. They probably can't. No, they can't, Addison. They don't know what you saw. They don't I'm know cr- what... 
I'm crying. I don't know what pocket dimension you were in. I'm crying. Um, anyway, so that that is what I pitched to you today. That is my newly revised, uh, completely from whole cloth, dare I say, perfected cryptozoological taxonomy. Oh my god, you did it. I think I did it. I think I fixed cryptozoology. <laughs> oh my god. Very bold claim. And now in future episodes, if anyone has any complaints about us deciding to cover something, I can simply refer them to our highly vetted, peer-reviewed academic source. <laughs> what are we calling it? The Flanagan system? I, I mean, I, I think that's only The fair. Flanagan index? <laughs> There's got to be a better name for it. I don't but, know. Um, for now, that will suffice. I think the Flanagan index sounds like Pretty much like a very real sounding thing that a science fiction writer would make up. Honestly, you're right. I'm pretty sure I saw it in a Michael Crichton novel somewhere. I wouldn't know. I still have not read the man's work. I am not familiar with his with his with his bibliography. That's not the word. You know, it's really okay. I was cleaning out my bookshelf the other day, and I actually ended up throwing out like four Crichton books. <laughs> Damn. And I was like, <laughs> see, you know, see right? a never. <laughs> well, because I was cleaning out my bookshelf, and I had like a hundred more books than I needed. And, you know, of course, when I was growing up, it was like, that was what I had instead of a personality was a whole bunch of books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I definitely had like gotten into my head at some point, like, I can't throw these away because being a book respecter is what makes me smart and different and not like other girls. I get Um, that. You get it. I'm sure that you do. This is is totally me dunking on myself here. I'm not trying to like rag on anybody else. Like this is all entirely self-drag. Oh, yeah. But, um, but I had so many more books than I needed. And I I had not unpacked most of them, like, since we moved into this new house. And so I was finally going through and I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to donate these because somebody will appreciate them more than I am appreciating them right now. And, Mm -hmm. like, even if these are beautiful artifacts that I collected for myself, like, if I'm not reading them, they're not... They're not serving the purpose of a book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I am I am very fortunate to be in a place in my life where I am no longer in such want that if I if I decide at some point that I want to revisit one of these books, I can just go get a copy of it. I can just go find a used copy and it's not going to be in the world. But anyway, so I got to my like extensive Michael Crichton collection and I was going through it and there were a few that I was like, I remember reading this. And, like, based on what I remember about the plot, I don't think the person I am would like this anymore. Yeah. Or there were ones that I was like, I've never read this, and at this point, I'm never going to. Um, I kept Jurassic Park because it's a perfect book. I haven't read it. I kept Sphere (laughs) because Sphere is everything to me. But I got rid of, like, everything else. (laughs) It's okay. I finally, uh, when I moved out to California and I was going through my old bookshelf, I finally convinced myself to donate the copy of On the Road that I never read but kept on my shelf because it was a book I felt like I was supposed to read. I definitely 100% get that. I have a lot of those still on my shelf. And then I have like three copies of the complete Sherlock Holmes collection. But those all spark joy in me, so. I have two separate copies of Edgar Allan Poe's collected works. Yes, I know he married his teenage cousin. I know. I'm really upset about it. But also those books, those stories were very formative for me as a child. So this is like, it's tricky. You're allowed to acknowledge the problems with problematic material and still recognize the purpose that it served for you when you were at a point in your life when you desperately needed it. Thank you. Also, uh, he is very much dead and did not receive a cent of my money when those books were purchased. <laughs> that is also fair and valid. Yeah, no, your money did not go to any problematic cause there. Anyway, so... Unlike the Harry Potter books, just saying. No, it's true. Uh, And just like it's okay to let go of the books that no longer serve you, I think it's okay for us to leave behind the cryptozoology (laughs) categorization (laughs) systems that no longer serve us. And we uh, can... We can can conmari all of cryptozoology. I don't think we can. Look at the Eberhardt system. We can thank it for what it's done. And then we can let it go. And we can roll it up like she rolls up her socks.
Yeah, and we can offer it up to another scientific field that might need it more. <laughs> we are saying, I feel like this is, I feel like, is this the episode that does us in? Is this the one? Is this the one where oh, people finally be. jump ship? I mean, listen, if they do, then we get our weekends back. <laughs> <laughs> spend the rest of time. No, Alex, we spend the rest of time doing this exact same show, just shouting it into the void. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Like, we're probably going to keep making Cryptid Keeper whether people are listening or not. Exactly. Because we never intended for people to listen in the first place, and we still kept making it. <laughs> Truly. If, oh, no. I still sometimes say things on here, and it's not like I mean that I don't mean say things that I think are, like, going to hurt anybody or be offensive. I just more mean I say, like, really silly, like, weird stream of consciousness things, and I forget about them, and I'm like, that went into a pit in the ground, a bottomless pit that no one will ever hear. And then someone tweets at me like, it was very funny when you said insert absolutely wild off the wall thing that I don't remember saying. And then I have to reconcile that with extremely huge mood. Yeah, I have to reckon with the fact that like, right, when I record this, it doesn't just disappear into a vortex. Yeah, there is that. But that's okay. Well, anyway, speaking, speaking of this wonderful journey that we've been on and all of the many incredible and strange and bizarre and wild twists and turns that we have taken since that very first day that we set foot into your apartment with Thai takeout and just sort of dissociated into a microphone. (laughs) It's true. We are so extremely grateful for everybody so far who has donated to Year of the Moth. It's been unbelievably successful, really. I I am blown away. We are currently sitting at around, I think, 1340 per month, which means that like in another $160-ish, we hit our next goal, which is incredible and it means that you know at only 1750 we get to do a cryptid keeper and horror borealis live show which i'm really really pulling for yes and then if we of course hit our 2020 year of the moth uh ultimate patreon goal then we get to go to the moth band festival and do a uh do the mothman episode finally please free us let us do the mothman episode so we can get it over and done with before we get canceled for <laughs> dunking on George Eber. This, this albatross that we carry. <laughs> us from the Mothman. Yeah, I was trying to make it an albatross moth. I was going to say albamoth and it, it's halfway out of my mouth. My, my my mouth rejected it. And so it just said albatross again. <laughs> That's because it's nothing. It's because it isn't anything. It is not a single solitary it, thing. It wasn't anything. But anyway, at 2020 per month, um, I get to see all my friends and we get to go on vacation to the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant. We will host a fan meetup there for anybody else going to the Mothman Festival. So you can have like a wonderful breakfast Hope probably at some like weird little diner with us, maybe Tudor's Biscuit World. I was gonna say I love the biscuit place. We love Tudor's Biscuit World, uh, and we would love to get to have that opportunity to meet a bunch of people. We had mm-hmm. so 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 much fun at our last live show, and we would love to replicate that and take it uh, above and beyond to the next super weird place we can go. Yes. So if you have a dollar or two or five, feel free to uh, throw it our way if you're not spending it anywhere better. And we would love to take it and turn it into something infinitely more bizarre. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a reminder, too, if you have contributed in the past or are thinking about doing so, um, doing so allows us to pay all of our artists and the folks to help make the show possible the way that we would like to do so. We're a small show with a pretty limited, a budget pretty much limited exclusively to what comes in via the Patreon and then uh, like our merch sales. So when you pitch in for that, you're helping us also 
pay our artists, which is something that the show cares a whole heck of a lot about since both of us have been freelancers in different creative fields at different points. Absolutely, 100%. So that is very important to the show and to just the both of us as individuals. So thank you for that. And this isn't even my final form. (laughs) Well, do you want to take us to the final words of the show and roll us on out? Absolutely. So... Thank you for uh, coming with us today, everybody. As always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay.